Well, good morning, Valley Bible Church. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us here on our online platform. We're uh, in the third week of our new series we're calling Revolutionary. And what we're doing as we journey through the Gospel of John, we're seeing, especially in chapters 2, 3, and 4, where we're at in this series, is that Jesus really comes in as being revolutionary, meaning Jesus has kind of blindsided the first century world, that, that people in the first century world didn't really know how to conceive of Jesus. He, he, didn't, he didn't fit very comfortably in their religious boxes. Their expectations and what Jesus would teach, how Jesus would behave, just did not fit very neatly in the boxes that they had prepared for him. We saw this when Jesus encountered uh, his mother in a confrontation over a miracle at a wedding. We saw this just last week when Jesus comes to the temple and has to clear it out. And we're going to see it again this week when Jesus speaks to a religious teacher. And what I want to invite you to do is, is as we've seen these encounters and these kind of revolutionary moments that people have, these kind of rough encounters, if you will, these kind of blindside moments, we've seen people kind of readjust what, it, what they think it means to follow God. And I want to invite you to do the same. Just as Jesus had to kind of give people some, some adjustments to their, to their thinking in the first century world, I think the same thing is true for us in our 21st century world. Now, and before we get to our passage, let me just jump in and ask you this question. Have you ever tried to solve a big problem with a small solution? A big problem with a small solution. Right? That doesn't work. It never works. Right? Big problems need big solutions and small problems need small solutions. And the worst thing is when a problem is big and we think it's small and so we use that small solution and it doesn't work out. Uh, let me illustrate that for you. Uh, my friend Steve, when his kids were young, anytime his kids would get hurt, this is what he would tell them. He would say, well, just put some water on it. So if it's a sprain or a a bruise or a scrape, they would come running up to dad and he would say, oh, just put some water on it. And surprisingly, it worked. The water worked. Now, it didn't work because it actually had some uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, enhanced medical treatment for whatever their ailment was, whatever their hurt was. It worked because, well, the kids were kind of young and naive and they thought it worked. Turns out the hurt wasn't as big as they made it. It wasn't until they got older that they started to say, wait a second, Dad, this is not appropriate medical treatment. Now, before you judge my friend Steve, I got to confess, I do the same thing. Now, I don't, I don't use water as my solution, but I use my kisses. My two-year-old is convinced anytime he gets a scrape or a boo-boo or anything like that, if Daddy gives him a kiss on it, it's going to work. If he scrapes or, 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 or tears away a nail... Daddy kisses it, everything's better. If he bumps his knee and there's a bruise, daddy kisses it and it's better. And that works for my two-year-old. My 10-year-old, on the other hand, who has used kind of this time during shelter in place to take some online pre-med courses, is now convinced that I'm committing some sort of medical malpractice. It doesn't work for her. She's not convinced. Now, that sounds silly, but I think we do this spiritually a lot. I think we try to take big spiritual problems and we try to solve them with small solutions. And that thing we tend to go back to, wherever we're at in our walk with Jesus, 
whether we're not yet walking with Jesus, but we're exploring spiritual things, or whether we're a committed follower of Jesus, what we tend to do is we tend to go back to this solution. And that solution is this. It's our spiritual resume. And what I mean by resume is it's, it's our spiritual heritage. Uh, the family of faith that we grew up in. Our, our parents' belief in those things. Or it's our hard work. The things that we do, the volunteer hours, the service, all of that stuff. And so we have this spiritual resume. And we try to use this resume to make ourselves right with God. Because that's our biggest spiritual problem is being right with God. And we use this solution, but that solution doesn't work. It's about as effective as Steve's water and my kisses. But they do nothing for bullet holes. They do nothing for open wounds. And the same thing is true when we try to use our spiritual resume. And this is exactly Jesus' point when he encounters this religious teacher in our passage today in John chapter 3. So let me show you this. And what I want to do is kind of give you the big idea, kind of the summary of what I think Jesus is, is speaking to this man, Nicodemus, this religious teacher. So if you're going to write down anything or put anything in your phone as a note for today, we always try to summarize our messages in kind of one big idea. So this is the big idea from this morning from our passage in John chapter 3. Resumes are terrible band-aids. Resumes are terrible band-aids. Resumes are good, right? They're, they're impressive. It's, it's good to know your spiritual heritage. It's good to have a spiritual heritage. Heritage. It's good to do hard work. It's, it's good to do good deeds. It, those things are good, but they don't stop the bleeding. The problem is too big. The problem is too large. We need something more. That, that's a good thing, but it's just not good enough. And I want to show you how Jesus encounters this religious teacher who has an incredible resume. But Jesus is going to show him a very abrupt truth a very revolutionary conversation and show him that his resume is a terrible band-aid. It won't stop the bleeding. It won't address the big problem. He needs a big solution to his big problem. So journey with me, let's, let's find this together. This is John chapter three. We're gonna start with verse one. We're gonna get introduced to this religious teacher by the name of Nicodemus. I may refer to him as Nick as we go throughout, just because it's easier and more natural for me. Verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. His name was Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now in these two verses, Nicodemus has given us a very impressive resume. Better than probably any of us could ever manage to compile or ever manage to put together. Uh, jump back again to verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees. Who is this? This is the most influential religious group in first century Palestine. So right there up front, we know that Nicodemus is devout. He studies the scriptures. He studies the Old Testament. He, he, he spends a lot of time, maybe away from family, and has devoted himself to the study of the law, which they took very, very seriously. 
There was at times where, where, where Pharisees would, would, would really intentionally move themselves away from the distraction of their family just so they could study the law. So this man is a part of the most influential group in first century Palestine. We actually see several interactions with the Pharisees, this group, and Jesus in the Gospel of John. Over 20 times, I believe it is, that they're mentioned just in the Gospel of John alone. Now, sadly, every time the Pharisees are mentioned, they're against Jesus. But these are the religious elite. And they don't like where Jesus is going. So it's a little surprising that we have this Pharisee kind of interacting with Jesus. But he's not just your average Pharisee. Keep reading, it says, the last part of verse 1, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. What this does, it shows that, that Nicodemus is also on another elevated platform. He's not just a Pharisee, not just one of, one of the most influential groups, right? Not just a part of that. He's not just an influential leader, but he's a leader of leaders, to be called a ruler of the Jews meant that he sat on the Sanhedrin. So the, this is a group of only 70. Only 70 people would sit on this, uh, on this council, if you will. It was this group of 70 men and the high priest who made up the Sanhedrin, which is an odd term, but in our kind of modern day understanding of things, it would be like our Supreme Court. That's how influential he was. Now, I think it actually goes a step further. Not only a Pharisee, not only a part of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, but I think he's a leader even of that elite group. Here's why. Look at how he talks to Jesus. It says he comes to Jesus alone. It's just him. Nobody else is mentioned. So he comes alone, but he speaks in the plural. Look what he says to Jesus as he addresses him. Rabbi. We know that you are a teacher come from God. We know. Right? If we read too fast, we kind of miss that. But I think that's significant. What does that tell us about Nicodemus? Nicodemus is not only this leader, but he not only associates with them, but he represents them. He could speak on their behalf. So he is not only just a part of the most influential group in first century Palestine. He's also a, an elite of that group. And even of the elite of that group, he's an elite. He may be one of the most influential leaders in Judaism at the time. Maybe top five, top ten, something like that. I mean, this guy is a powerful player. This guy has a very impressive resume. Better than any of us could ever muster. I mean, if anybody is going to be right with God, it's got to be this guy. Right? Well, let's, let's keep seeing. Look what he says about Jesus. It says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. What is this great man with a great resume, with a great heritage, with great hard work? What does he think of Jesus? Well, he seems pretty gracious of Jesus, actually. It calls him rabbi. So at least what Nicodemus is doing is he's saying, hey, we're equals. I'm a teacher. You're a teacher. You must be from God. This feels probably like the most courteous that any Pharisee will ever be of Jesus in the Gospels. 
Because Jesus was seen as what's called a common man or an ignorant man. Because Jesus was one who had to kind of work the land. He, he, he was blue collar, maybe is a good way to think of it. Jesus was a carpenter. He didn't have the time to study the minutia of the Old Testament scriptures. He, he had no time to be a, a learned leader. So he was often called, and we'll see this later in the Gospel of John, a kind of a, an ignorant man. And they were surprised at Jesus' ability to teach. Jesus' first century followers got the same critique from the religious elite. They were called common men, fishermen. They, they, they're, they, they're unlearned. Yes, sure, they, they know the, the normal kind of knowledge of a practicing Jew of the time, but they didn't have time to devote themselves to the, to the scriptures like the Pharisees did or those who sat on the Sanhedrin did. So that Jesus is getting this kind of title from this Pharisee, it may be more than just flattering. This may be a, a, time, a, a term that is very honoring to Jesus. So let's just pull back a little bit. Look at this guy's resume so far. We have to be impressed. A part of the most influential religious group. Of that group, he's in the leadership of that group. Even in those leaders, it seems to be that he's a leader of those leaders. And then it seems like he believes in Jesus. He gives, he's giving some honor to Jesus. He even says these signs that you do. That there's no way that you are anything but someone sent from God. So right up front, this feels, well, pretty good. This guy seems pretty qualified. I mean, if we're looking at his spiritual resume and he's sliding across the desk here to show that he's qualified, we would be pretty impressed. He's gone to the right schools. He has the right circle of friends. He's done the right things. All of that. Surely this man is right with God. But Jesus doesn't think so. Jesus can see Nicodemus' heart. We, signed, we kind of saw this tension a little bit last week at the closing of chapter 2. This is what it says in verse 23. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem, Jesus, at the time of the Passover feast, many believed in his name. So it seems like this is a good thing. When they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his own part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Do you see that balance there? There's a semblance of belief. It, it looks like things are good, but it says that Jesus, who knows all men, would not entrust himself to them. We're going to see this as we go along, that as Jesus encounters people, he can see something that others can't see. So as impressed as we should be by Nicodemus, Jesus is not. He can see that there is something missing. There's a big problem. And this resume that Nicodemus is kind of flaunting in front of Jesus is not going to work. It's not going to impress him. I would argue it only annoys him. And Jesus makes this very clear in his interaction with Nicodemus. Look at verse 3. Try to put yourself... Again, in Nicodemus's shoes here. A great resume, great heritage, great hard work, done all the right things. He meets with Jesus 
And Jesus doesn't waste any time. There's no casual, polite conversation. They don't speak of the weather, what's going on politically. None of that. Jesus gets straight to the heart. He uses that phrase that I said we should look out for in the Gospel of John. He says, truly, truly, in verse 3. This is those moments, we called them a couple weeks ago, the coach moments. This is when your coach grabs your face mask and says, if you miss your block again, if you miss your assignment again, you're on the bench. It's that moment of focus that we need to pay attention. This is what Jesus is saying. So Nicodemus kind of speaks these flattering terms to Jesus, calls him a teacher, calls him a rabbi. He knows who he is. He's, he's slided o- slid over the resume. And Jesus looks straight at him and says, buddy, you're missing it. Look what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Wow. Now, it sounds maybe a little cryptic at kind of the first glance here. What is he talking about? We're talking about not seeing the kingdom of God. In verse 5, the idea of seeing the kingdom of God, verse 5, it's talked about he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is, he, what, is he, what is he talking about to Nicodemus? Nicodemus, you're not getting in. That's the idea. Like you can't see the kingdom. You can't participate in the kingdom. You can't enter the kingdom of God. You will not be a part of God's rule and reign. You will not enjoy his presence. These are strong terms here. And and notice what he says to Nicodemus. He's not saying, you know, Nick, you need some alterations. Like, we need to make some adjustments. Like, I appreciate your resume, but you have a gap here after grad school where you weren't working, and I'm not impressed by that. No, he doesn't tell him there's a gap in your resume. He doesn't say, well, you're missing one thing. He doesn't say, hey, let's do some course correction, some behavioral modification. Let's adjust. That's not what he does. What does he say? You must be born again. Now, I think John is using this term again very intentionally because this this word is very fairly uh, translated here in chapter 3, at least right in this moment, as again. But it can also mean above. In fact, every time that word is used in the gospel, apart from this paragraph here, it always means above, from above. Now, I think what John is doing is he's being very intentional uh, with his word choice here. I think he wants both meanings to come out. I think he's saying he wants to, us to think of, again, like a new birth, but he, he, the origin of that new birth is from God. You, you must be born again and born from above. You need a new work, and that new work needs to come from God. You need divine intervention to change your life. I mean, think about the the illustration, the analogy that he uses here. He's not saying make an adjustment. He says what you need is so radical, is so revolutionary, it can only be described as a birth experience. I mean, that's a pretty life-altering, well, I guess uh, life-starting event. I mean, your birth event, that moment, the start of, of, of your story is incredibly significant. And he's telling them, this is the kind of experience you need. It's like the resume was slid over and Jesus looks at it and rips it up. None of this will do. You're missing it, man. You're missing it. And look at the response of Nicodemus. He, he comes in very polite and now he gets very defensive. 
And, and in my opinion, in my reading of this, I don't think the statement he's about to make is a statement of ignorance. Like he's saying, well, Jesus, I just don't understand what you're talking about. I think it's a, it's a, it's a statement of insecurity because he feels like he's been insulted by Jesus. Right? Look at his response. Verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, I, I feel like when you're speaking to Jesus here and in this moment, like clearly Jesus is, is not speaking solely of physical birth, about, about entering in again to your mother's womb. Like, those are just silly phrases. And I think Nicodemus knows that. I think if, even if a, a 10-year-old read this passage, they would think, man, Nicodemus, you're off. And Nicodemus is a very learned man. So I think there's a level of insecurity here that's coming out. He feels like Jesus has insulted him. And really, he has. Jesus is not impressed. He, he doesn't casually bring the conversation to a climactic moment. Jesus just starts with it and says, you're not going to see, man. You're not going to get in. You need to be born again. You need to be born above. You need a new work in you. All this other stuff, this resume, it won't do. Your heritage won't do. Your hard work will not do. You need to be changed. And I think Nicodemus's response here is very appropriate as kind of representing probably Jesus' interaction with many of the Pharisees. See, see, back then in Judaism, they believed that any Jew would get in to the kingdom of God. That at the last day when there was the resurrection, they would enter into the kingdom of God. Simply because they were Jewish. And the only way to, to lose out on this inheritance was to abandon the faith or commit an egregious sin. Uh, just something incredibly radical. So you were safe simply because you were Jewish. Your, your, your heritage would keep you safe. So it's fair to say that Nicodemus is astounded by Jesus' comment. Because Nick is thinking to himself, hey, why do I need a second birth? My first birth is good enough. I'm fine. Right, let me show you. Jesus has a, a, an interaction very similar to this later in the gospel in John chapter 8. Right? And, and, and let me read this to you and, and think of this as a backdrop to Nicodemus's response here. About how shocking and revolutionary this idea is of being born again and your first birth is no good. Right? This is John chapter 8. I'm going to read verse 39. And then he answered, Abraham, are they, they, sorry, they answered him. Abraham is our father. Again, going back to their heritage. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works of Abraham, or the works Abraham did, verse 40. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your, your father did. And they said, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Now they're pulling it back more. We're not just of Abraham. Our origins are in God. Our heritage is, is all the way back in the promises of God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. 
For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Wow. I mean, you can, I mean, you can feel the tension in that conversation. And I think this is, is a, a very appropriate way for us to read the tension that is happening between Nicodemus and Jesus. I do not think this is a very polite and casual conversation. And Jesus is going to push all of his chips forward. He's going to go all in. He's not going to allow Nicodemus to kind of wiggle out of this and, and to, to impress him anymore, to, to float out a resume. He's going to say, no, Nick, your problem is so big. It's so big and you're missing it. Maybe you've come to me for a slight life adjustment, but you have no life right now. You need new life, new birth from above, from God. Look at how he makes this clear. Pushes this idea even further. Verse five. And Jesus answered, truly, truly, again, that coach moment, that intense moment. Jesus uses it twice here with Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. He's speaking of natural birth here, right? He's speaking, you had a physical birth and that has given you physical life. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You need spiritual birth. Do not marvel that I've said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Jesus kind of illustrates and uses several different metaphors to kind of describe this new birth experience. And I think it's very interesting, the kind of illustrations and language that Jesus uses here, because it's directly from the Old Testament, which is what Nicodemus is supposed to know. I mean, Nick has all of his degrees in Old Testament literature, in Old Testament hope, in Old Testament study. And Jesus saturates this small paragraph here with so much Old Testament expectation, it's like he's telling Nicodemus, how can you not see this? Why do you marvel at this? Why does this surprise you? You should have seen this coming. Jesus will say later, are you not a teacher of the law and you don't know this? This should be elementary. It should be of first principle. You should know that a new work needs to happen. So let's jump back to verse five as Jesus illustrates it. Truly, truly, he says, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit. We should understand these kind of two terms together. The idea of water and spirit. Just in the gospel of John, he's gonna use the idea of water as kind of a metaphor for the activity of the spirit. But this is a direct kind of allusion to a promise in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 36, in verse 25 The prophet speaks of a new work that God is going to do. 
to ensure that his people will be faithful to him, that they will not run away from him anymore, that they will be his children, he will be their God. He's going to restore what's called the covenant, the agreement, and he's going to do a new work. This is the new covenant, the new agreement. And this act is God changing his people. And look at how he uses the idea of kind of water and spirit at the same time. Verse 25 of Ezekiel 36. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Do you see that idea? It's not talking about baptism here. We, sh- we shouldn't read it as that. Baptism is kind of that, that, that Christian uh, uh, a symbol of a new life. You, you've been changed. You believe and then you are baptized. But that's not what John is talking about in John chapter 3. He's speaking about this promise that God will do a new work, a cleansing work. He says, I will wash you with clean water. Verse 25, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will move the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the center of Old Testament hope. This passage right here and, and, and its concepts that are in there. This is what everybody was waiting for. Everybody was looking for. The entirety of the Old Testament brings us to this kind of promise because the people of God learn over and over again, we can't do it. This isn't working. We can't fix our heart. Our obedience won't fix our heart. We need our heart to be fixed and then our obedience will follow. We need a work of God. The Spirit must come down, must cleanse us, tear out our old heart, give us a new heart. We need a new move from God. We need to be born from above. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, Nick, this is what you need. And this is what you are missing. Can you imagine, I don't know, the feeling, I don't want to say of insult, but, but almost of shame on Nicodemus right now. I mean, Jesus is just schooling him here on things he should know. And he takes it even further. This is what you need. You need this spirit and water work. You you need to be cleansed. You need to have new birth. And then he says, look at verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You should know this. And the verse, which is kind of a strange verse, but I think it's, it's very interesting and it ties back to that passage in Ezekiel. He uses the analogy of the wind. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. What is he saying there? He's saying you don't understand the origin and you don't understand the end. Right? You don't understand the beginning and you don't understand the end. Now, what is he talking about here? He's talking about not the Spirit's work, but those who are actually born of the Spirit. Right? Look at the rest of the verse. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's talking about anybody who's experienced new birth. He's telling them, Nicodemus, you don't get these guys. You've missed this hope. And when, when God truly changes people, Nick, you look at it and you can't even see it. You don't understand where it came from and you don't understand where they're going. You don't understand how their life got changed in the beginning and you don't understand their eternal destiny. They are a mystery to you. You can't understand it. Now, Jesus, again, is saturating kind of this this paragraph here with Old Testament imagery. 
if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 36, you can just look at your Bible and see that the next chapter is Ezekiel 37. This is the valley of the dry bones. This is an illustration that God gives the prophet of Elijah, there, or, or sorry, Isaiah. There's a valley of dry bones. Dry bones meaning these are bones that have been there for a very long time. They're dry. They're, there's no moisture. These things have been dead for a long time. But then the prophet is commanded by God. He says, command, prophesy breath. Prophesy, son of man, say to the breath. Right? Thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Do you see that there? He's speaking about God's breath. He's talking about wind there. And he's saying, what's going to happen? God is going to bring new life and reanimate dead bones. It's resurrection language. This is exactly what Jesus uses in John chapter 3. He says, man, you don't, you don't get it. Just like you would look at a skeleton laying on the ground, and if it came to life, you would not understand how this happened. He said, Nicodemus, this is how far off you are. You don't understand the work of the Father. You must be born again, and you do not see it. Look at verse 9. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? I just don't get it. Now, maybe at this point, Maybe at this point, he's kind of confessing some ignorance here. I don't want to be too hard on Nicodemus here. Maybe he's just admitting now, okay, checkmate, Jesus. Uh, Clearly, I'm missing it. And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? Now notice, notice that slight change of language here. He didn't say, you are a teacher of Israel. He says, you are the teacher of Israel. And yet you do not understand. Again, I think it points back to his resume. He's showing him, you're not just a teacher. You're not just not kind of the average line of teacher. You are the teacher. I think he's giving him a sense of, of prominence here. Like, you are a significant, influential studier of God's word and a deliverer of it. And you can't see the most fundamental work of God. That you need to be changed, transformed, born again, born from above. Look at verse 11. Truly, truly. Again, he uses this. Do you see the intensity of this conversation? I mean, this, it's fair to say that this is like a car wreck. I mean, this is a collision of conversation here. Jesus is, I don't want to say the word aggressive, but that's what it feels like. He won't let Nick get away with not understanding that he has such a big problem And he needs a big solution. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak. I love this. Nicodemus started with, well, we speak as representing the Sanhedrin, as representing the Pharisees. We speak, you know, puffing his chest, showing he has leadership. Jesus takes that same practice. Well, let me tell you about the we I represent. What is he speaking here? This is Trinitarian language. This is Jesus saying, let me tell you what the Father and let me tell you what the Holy Spirit And I, we talk about. Let me tell you what we know. What we know is you're missing it. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. Listen to these words, verse 12. If I have told you earthly things, what is he saying? I told you the simplest thing. You should have known this. It's in Ezekiel. 
It's in Isaiah. It's in Joel. It's in the Psalms. You should have known this new birth is something that you've been waiting for. If I had told you earthly things and you did not believe, I, the simple things you can get, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If I speak of future things, you would miss it. Okay, at this point, let's just sympathize a little bit, empathize a little bit with Nicodemus. Because maybe you're feeling, if you're placing yourself, like I asked you in the beginning of the service, to kind of place yourself in Nicodemus's shoes here, Maybe you just kind of thrown up your hands. Okay, if this is so important, if the problem is so big that I don't need just adjustments in my life, I need new life. I need to be born from above. I need to be born again, radically transformed, cleaned and washed by God, have his spirit indwell me, tear out my heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. I need a radical moment of change, life altering, starting a new story. It's a new birth, erasing all the old and only now moving forward. I need that kind of moment. Okay, well, stop. What did you do to be born the first time? You did nothing. I, I, I was not involved in my birthing process, right? There were two people who made decisions, right, that brought that about. I was not involved. There's no activity on my part, right? Conception was a choice of somebody else, not me. So you kind of feel a little paralyzed here if you're Nicodemus. Okay, if all this is wrong and I need new birth, then what am I supposed to do? If I didn't cause my first birth, my, as he would say, uh, my birth of the flesh, then how can I cause this second birth, this new birth, born from above? Now, this is a tension that John, the gospel writer, loves to keep in balance. The tension is between the activity of God and the activity of man. And we saw this in chapter 1, if you remember. In chapter 1, verse 12, look look at the tension, or sorry, yeah, verse 12, look at the tension. But to all who did receive him, that's our actions, who believe in his name, that's our actions, he gave the right to become children of God, verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, here's God's action. John is going to do this in several different analogies, in several different ways, but here he uses born and he'll use belief. He's saying, you need an act of God. You need to be born again. But then he focuses Nicodemus and says, you can do something, and that is you need to believe. And right now at this point in the gospel, John is not going to reconcile what causes what. Does does birth from God cause belief? Does belief cause you to be born He's not going to spell that out. That's going to come a little later. But here he's just going to kind of maintain that kind of balance for us here. And he's going to put forth from Nicodemus, you need to believe. Look at how he uh, kind of uh, relieves this tension a little bit. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who has descended from heaven, the son of man. He's saying, I focus on me, Nicodemus. I'm special. I'm from heaven. I've descended from heaven. I am the unique son of man to reveal you the truth that you need. And this is the truth that he needs. Verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent. I love this. In the wilderness. This is a story from the Old Testament. People of God are experiencing a plague. Venomous snakes have come and bit the people as punishment for their sin. 
And as people are running scared and and now are bit, they plead to Moses. Intercede on our behalf, Moses. We need forgiveness. We confess our sin. We were wrong. And God tells Moses, okay, Moses, here's what you're going to do. As a symbol to show the people that I'm their only means of deliverance, what I want you to do is I want you to create a snake and put it on a pole. And if the people look at it, they'll be healed. They'll be forgiven. Judgment will be taken away. And this is what Jesus uses. It makes sense because Nicodemus, again, is a teacher of the law. So he says, let's go back to the Old Testament. You remember the story in the book of Numbers. Well, this will happen to me. Verse 15. Or sorry, second half of verse 14. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Jesus is speaking of his crucifixion and his resurrection here. Son of Man will be lifted up, that whoever believes, Nicodemus, you need to be born. God must do a work in you. You need to believe that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is how you get the kingdom. This is how you get to see and how you get to enter in. Nicodemus, your resume is a terrible band-aid. It won't stop the bleeding. It won't fix the problem. Sure, your heritage is great. You should be proud to be a son of Israel. You should be proud to be Jewish. Your hard work is great. You should study the law, study the scriptures, study the Bible. You should do all these things. But these things cannot remedy your problem. It's too big. It's as effective as Steve's water and my kisses are to a bullet hole. They're going to do nothing. I'm going to fix anything. We need a big solution because we have a big problem and our resume won't work our spiritual heritage won't work our spiritual hard work won't work we need to look at christ believe we need to be born from above we need to be born again now what does this mean for you let's kind of get really specific and i really want to narrow down some of the application this morning you see when i was reading this passage I thought of a very specific group of people. You see, I have the um, unique experience of being a lead pastor here at Valley Bible Church. And my unique experience is because I, I served here uh, prior. I served here as a youth pastor from 2009 to 2014. Now, I ended about six years ago. And, and so many of the students that I served, if not all of the students that I served when they were in junior high and high school, are now in their 20s, in their early 20s. And I specifically thought of that group as I was studying this passage. And if that's you, you know I love you. You know I care deeply about you. You know that we had so much fun You know that we broke things that probably, let's be honest, are probably still not fixed. (laughs) We laughed together. You listened to all my jokes. You laughed at some of my jokes. We prayed together, cried together. And I've watched you grow in those six years that I've been gone. Mostly because of social media and frequent visits when we would come up, me and my 
family up north, and this would always be the place where we would come and visit. It's kind of our, our home away from home church. So we would have some interactions, some conversations, some calls, some texts, different interactions on social media. And it's, it's been exciting to watch you grow over those six years. But if I'm honest, it's also been difficult. And to narrow it even more, there's a group of you right before I left. I want to say the week before I left. We're all gathered together, small group of you. And I remember praying a prayer for you. And if that's you, you, you probably remember that moment too. And I prayed very passionately that God would not let you go far from him as you entered into adulthood. And I meant that prayer because it was hard to leave you. It was hard to to move away from you. It was hard to be called by God to go to a different place. And so that prayer with all the passion I had in my person was totally genuine. And I'm wondering if some of you need to have a conversation with Jesus like Nicodemus had. Not a conversation with Paul, although I would love that. But you need to have a conversation with Jesus just like Nicodemus. Because I'm wondering, are you leaning on your resume? Are you leaning on your heritage? You grew up in this church. You participated in every activity we ever did. Every silly game I ever came up with. You were there. You were on the leadership teams. Your, your parents served as volunteer leaders in uh, my student ministry. Uh, some of your friends were, or your, your parents were, I'm still very close friends with. And I, and I wonder if you're leaning on your heritage. Because you grew up here. Because you went through Awanas. You went through the student ministry. But did you believe? Were you born again? Did you see Jesus as the only means of your forgiveness? I invite you to have a very real conversation with Jesus this week. Now, maybe your hurdle is not heritage. Right? Let me broaden out a little bit. Maybe it's your hard work. Right? If, if somebody were to ask you to prove the vitality of your faith, you would speak of the amount of hours that you serve and the ministries that you volunteer in and 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 maybe when you came into valley bible church and you came in you just started serving and moving you you just you just got your hands dirty right you just did some hard work you did some great things and i applaud that thank you for volunteering thank you for serving but i want to ask you to take a moment and pause and entertain this question because maybe it's it's become more real to you now during this shelter in place, right? As this building has been closed, 
Maybe you realize now those bad habits that you had before you came to Valley are starting to come up again. And maybe what you were was not born again, but just busy. Maybe you were busy, and now that you're not busy, you're back to your old patterns, your old behavior, your old lifestyle. Did you truly believe, or did it look like belief because you were busy? To all of us, let me say this. God is not waiting to be impressed. He's waiting for you to confess. God's not looking for you to slide your resume across the desk and show that you're qualified to be right with Him. That won't work. That won't stop the bleeding. It won't fix the problem. Your heritage and your hard work are not good enough. You need to confess as they did in the desert before Moses. We are sick with not the venom of snakes, but the venom of sin. We have fallen and our consequences is a life of brokenness. And the only thing we could do is plead. Moses, please give us hope. But now it is Jesus Christ who is lifted up before us on the cross. And it is only till we move our gaze to him, confess our need, our shortcoming, and find our hope for righteousness, for new life, for new birth, found only in his death and resurrection, will we finally stop the bleeding. Your heritage won't do it. Your hard work won't do it. So my prayer for you is that you would confess to the Lord. I'm going to pray to close us out. And in my prayer, I want to pray a prayer as a model that you could do. If you know as I've spoken, as I've really just opened up God's word for you and explained it, that you have found yourself in that Nicodemus moment where you thought you were good and everything was okay. But having a confrontation with Jesus' words have shown you that you have not been born again. You've been not, you have not been born from above. You have not truly believed in Jesus. Then I invite you to take that step today. To confess him as Lord. To ask for forgiveness from your sin and to find only in him the means of that forgiveness. If that's you, then you pray that prayer from your heart as I pray it. Let's all pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Father, we all need a Nicodemus-like moment in our life. And we all probably have had that moment. If we've come to faith in you and we've decided to follow you as our Lord and Savior, to see you as the only means of forgiveness Christ, We've all had that moment where we had to realize to get, in a sense, to the end of ourselves, That we weren't impressive. We weren't qualified for anything but your judgment. We pushed you away. 
and entered into a life of brokenness. The only way to fix that brokenness is with the gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray if anybody is out there listening to this, and it may be awkward to sit in a living room with a group of people and to privately pray, but, Father, I pray that now or later they would find that time. If that's you and I'm speaking to you and you have not yet truly put your faith in Jesus Christ, death and resurrection, you haven't been following him as your Lord and Savior, then my prayer is that you would pray this prayer as a model, not, not as magical words, but as a model. It's got to come from your heart. You can pray something like this. You can pray, Father, I see that I've sinned against you. And I am in need of your forgiveness. I'm not close to you as I should be. I'm far from you. My shame is real. My regrets are many. And I'm burdened by them. But Father, I see that you have provided a means of forgiveness in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I commit myself to Jesus. I receive that forgiveness that was bought for me and given to me as a gift. And today, I commit my life to following you. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. I want you to know if you prayed that prayer with me that I am incredibly excited and so is everybody here at Valley Bible Church and we'd love to see you baptized. That's kind of the next step. If you're wondering what do I do after this? What do you do after belief? You get baptized. And that may be very interesting for us to try to figure out how to do that during this pandemic but we will find a way to be obedient to the Lord's commands and to celebrate with you. So if that's you, please reach out to the church office, contact us on the website via email. We look forward to seeing you again next Sunday.